everybody. I hope you can hear me above the Zimbabwe national anthem in the background. But um, again, a real joy to, um, to just be able to share with you guys and what a privilege it is to be with this little fellowship. And I count it a great honor and a great um, responsibility to be able to share what the Lord has laid on my heart today with you. So thank you for inviting me, and uh, uh, just lovely to be with you guys again. So I'm going to, my launch pad today is going to be a, last week I was in Rwanda, and I learned firsthand um, what Africa could be like. It's, it was absolutely mind-blowing for me to be in a country where, and I'm not exaggerating, I did not see one sweet paper on the side of the road. You don't see it. You can look, you can, in the rural areas, in the high-density township, in the, the marketplaces, you will not see a piece of paper on the floor. There's just a culture of picking up litter. Um, and I don't know what's so different about our one, but if you throw something away, some other Rwandan citizen will dress you down. It's in their DNA. They don't allow it. There are, I did not see a pothole. Bear in mind, these guys are less than 30 years away from a serious genocide. People stop at the robots. It's just mind-blowing. <laughs> um, the roads are painted. Everything is just beautiful. If ministers are given performance contracts, if you do not perform, you get fired. And I do know that there is zero, zero, zero tolerance for corruption. If you dare try and bribe a policeman, you will go to jail. And the ministers are on these performance-type contracts. They have, they have a work ethic. The first Saturday of every month, if you're caught in your house, you're in big trouble. You have to go out and clean your community up. It's national service. From the president down to everybody you get, between 7 and 11, you are not allowed in your houses. And you either pick up litter or build something or whatever your community leaders ask you to do. Everybody gets together shoulder to shoulder. And their president's been in for since the genocide. And I know the outside world is, is saying that he's overstayed his welcome and he should step down. But you speak to the average Rwandan, they love their president and they don't want him to go anywhere. Because he rules with an iron fist, but it's a benevolent one. He does it for the good of his country. Um, it's very autocratic, but it is for the good of his country. Now, how can this, a country that in 1994 went through a genocide where a million people were killed in two days, how can this happen? And it's just, it was a start. I went to the Genocide Museum and I came out with just such heaviness in my heart when you see 
the history of that country. There's 250,000 bodies buried in that genocide museum. The rest are, there's, as I say, a million were killed. And it, it, it just brings you such a heavy heart and just to refer a bit of history. When the Belgians colonized that area, they created the two tribes to divide them. They measured people from there to there, their length of their noses. And if you were that long, you were a Hutu, and if you were shorter than that, you were a Tutsi. They created a division amongst Rwandans that were, they didn't have tribal issues before. And they just, um, it's just amazing how, how that hatred can build up and build up and build up until I, we, there was a person who spoke, and he was a little boy, and his, grand, his godparents were in the next door house, and his best friend was in the next door house. The two families were very close, and his godparents, as I say, were there, and his parents were godparents to his little friend. And then one day, when this all sparked up, the parents of the other lot, who were the Hutus, just came in and killed his parents in front of him. They'd been best friends for life. And then this hatred had just stirred up out of nowhere, this bloodlust. And they were just indiscriminately killing the, the um, Holocaust Museum, uh, not Holocaust, the Genocide Museum, as a room about as big as this with just children's pictures on it. Young children, uh, just little pictures all over, and that just thousands of little children that were just killed during this time. And I believe what I see in Rwanda today has been the rebuild has been based on one Christian principle, and that is forgiveness. They've learned to forgive one another. They had, yes, there's been justice, but if the perpetrators, they are, you can go there now, and the perpetrators are standing side by side with the victims. And they work together, and they, they work together in forgiveness. There's been the most incredible, and I don't know whether it, there was a Christian revival at that time, but it can only be God when people who've been through what they've been through can forgive one another. And that, I believe, is what's made God bless a country. They've blessed it economically. They've blessed the people. They've blessed um, the fragile peace that was there for many years. In 19, a lot of the perpetrators went into other countries uh, when uh, Kagame came in and restored everything. Because remember... Not only were the people killed, but banks were shut. There was nothing left. In 1994, there was nothing left. No banks, no shops, no nothing. That's how horrific it was. But when the perpetrators tried to come back in, in 1997, to stir it all up again, what they used to do was, during the genocide, they'd go into schools and they'd ask the little kiddies, junior school, who's a Hutu, who's a Tutsi? They'd put them on either side of the room and then kill the Tutsis front of their friends. But when they tried that back in, in 97, they tried it, they came back, 
and they went into a school and they started their same nonsense again. And the little kiddies all as one stood up and they said, we are Rwandans. And you're not allowed to call each other tribally anymore. They are Rwandans. Finished. And, uh, and so, um, so I believe that the foundation stone of a broken, finished country has been forgiveness, and God blesses, blesses them for that. I was with a pastor who, who had 41 members of his family killed that day. And he is in a ministry of reconciliation now where they, he brings the perpetrators and the victims together and they, they work together and, and carry on with this forgiveness thing because it doesn't just stop. Um, and he went into the prison one day where the people who had killed his family were there. And when they, they were in prison, they saw him coming and they thought he was going to... Um, really be harsh with them or something, but he went, he went up to them and he just, he said, and they, he said to them, do you know who I am? And they said, yes, we do. His wife, his children, 41 members of his extended family. Anyway, he went to them and he just walked up to them and he said, please, will you forgive me? And they said, why? And they said, he said, because I've hated you for so long. Please forgive me for hating you. And that's the kind of forgiveness that has birthed an most incredible, incredible nation. So that gives me a launching pad, a platform now to speak about a hard topic, which is forgiveness. And I believe, for me, forgiveness, I know some of you will have heard my story before about the road Bridgie and I went on when we lost our farm. But... I believe that forgiveness is the fulcrum of the Christian faith. We talk about it a lot. We know we have to do it, but do we? Genuinely in our hearts. I like what C.S. Lewis says about it. C.S. Lewis said, everybody says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. It's a great concept. And especially to forgive someone who we feel does not deserve it. And so, yes, there are many people that need our forgiveness and they don't deserve it. But then I, when I think about that, I turn it on to myself and say, do I deserve any forgiveness? Do I deserve the forgiveness that God given me? Well, the answer is certainly no. So... The question for today is, is forgiveness conditional or is it unconditional? If we read, some people will use the cop-out scripture in Luke 17.3 where it says, if someone repents, forgive him. And, they will, and, and that's what uh, Jesus said. But... And so people will use that as an excuse not to forgive someone who doesn't really deserve forgiveness. Well, I think Jesus, what he's saying there, he was just giving a, 
an example of um, forgiveness 101. In other words, duh, of course, if someone asks for repentance, uh, repents, of course you should forgive them. But that's just the, that's just the obvious. What Jesus is really, you know, he's not, he's not saying if they don't for, repent, don't forgive them. He's not saying that. He's stating the obvious because he wants us to give everybody a blanket forgiveness because we don't know a person's heart. If somebody comes to you and says, oh, please forgive me for what you've done, for what I did to you, is he doing it just to, we don't know what his real heart is. So that's why Jesus is actually saying, leave that to me. I see people's hearts, but what I want you to do is blanket forgive, whether it's deserved or whether it's not. I remember uh, at the end of, uh, with a new uh, end of apartheid in South Africa, they had that Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and there was an amnesty. If you went and said, yes, I did this, you got an amnesty. Well, I would say that a lot of those people did it for the amnesty, not in their hearts. And so only God knows that. So that's why he's saying, if somebody comes to you and says, I've, I've repented, you don't really know whether he has or not. But he does. And that's why he's saying, leave it to me. I will decide. Vengeance is mine. The, the disciples at that time if you read along in that passage, it said, uh, um, you know, they weren't used to this. They were still sort of a little bit stuck in the Old Testament, uh, eye for an eye and stuff. And so that after Jesus had explained it to them, they said, yes, Lord, increase our faith to be able to do this. Because it does take faith to be able to get to that place of, of that kind of forgiveness. Little did they know that Jesus was going to take them even deeper? And if we read Luke 6, 38, 28, it says, Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on the cheek, turn the other one also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anybody takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have done unto you. It just doesn't make sense, does it? It really doesn't make sense. Sort of, why would I forgive that person when it's, and I must feed him and I must give him food and water, and why must I do that? It's going to make him stronger to hurt me even more. That's what our logic says. But you see, our hands are not Jesus' hands. And he is saying, no, I have a different way. So, so back to Rwanda, whilst justice took place, um, those who, who the judge felt genuinely repented got light sentences, a lot fled. <clears throat> but justice came to that country, and it's still being ruled with an iron fist, but a very benevolent one, I believe. And I believe that forgiveness actually has, is a higher priority than justice, because justice is man-made. Forgiveness is in your heart. And I, I believe that forgiveness can bring justice, 
I believe that justice can never bring forgiveness. For if somebody offends me and then goes to jail for it, does that make me forgive him? No. It hardens his heart towards me. So you have this cycle that never ends. Forgiveness can flatten it. So justice, I believe, can be a fruit of faithfulness, of, of forgiveness, and not, not the other way around, I believe. Justice can harden hearts, and it's a man-made concept. And whereas forgiveness comes from the heart and gives Jesus room to work on both sides, on the perpetrator and the offended. You see, I could get to a place where whether that person goes to jail or not, I should be able to forgive him. Him going to jail is not going to make me forgive him more. I certainly believe that justice is a fruit of forgiveness. And James 2.13 says, Mercy always trumps justice any day. And of course, courtrooms and judges are necessary in our fallen world as a standard for, for right and wrong. But we need to remember it's actually no match for God's perfect justice in our hearts because we do not war against flesh and blood. We are war warring against powers and principalities in the heavens. And the weapons of our warfare should not be carnal. Courtrooms are carnal. We need to demolish strongholds with the, the weapons the Lord has given us. So what does Jesus say in Scripture? He came along to abolish the law, right? And I know there are many Old Testament passages on law and justice, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Those kind of things were relevant there. And they were applied before Jesus' time. But Jesus comes along and in one, John 1, 17, I want you to, to read this because it's a startling revelation. He says, Jesus says, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus says he came to abolish the law, and when he talks about judgment, he talks about truth and grace. Truth and grace. That's, was, that's how Jesus' judgment was measured. You see, when you tell, when you are telling the truth, the truth is important, but if you don't season it with grace, that is now called judgment, pointing finger. So whenever you're telling the truth, we need to season it with grace. Otherwise, that is called judge, judgment. And Matthew 7, 1 says, Jesus condemns judgment. But grace, on the other hand, grace without truth is just pandering to wrong. So there's a real tension here between grace and truth. And Jesus was able to do both. He spoke the truth when it needed to be spoken, but he spoke it with grace. So it didn't come out as judgment. And when he needed to, to show grace, he never left out or abandoned the truth. 
truth and grace was what Jesus did. And then later on in Matthew 5, 38 and 39, he says, he says this. Listen to this. Jesus is emphatic when he says this. He says, it is no longer an eye for an eye, but I say, do not resist the one who is evil. Wow, that doesn't make sense. Do not resist the one who is evil. Surely, surely that's not what Jesus is saying here. Then he goes on in that passage to talk about the turning of the cheek and um, blessing, replacing curse with a blessing and feed. If your enemy's hungry, give him something to drink. If he's thirsty, uh, give him something to eat. He it just doesn't make sense. But Jesus has a different way. It's an upside down way. It's not what we're thinking in our logic. It's not our carnal minds. He is saying, do what I say and watch what I'll do. Because he will sort it out for you. Vengeance is his, says the Lord. And if we take vengeance into our hands, carnally, we're just increasing the cycle of revenge because then it comes back on us and then we go back the other way and it just goes backwards and forwards. So he is saying, that's why we have this unconditional command for unconditional forgiveness, not dependent on whether the guy deserves it or not, not dependent on whether he's repented or not. Unconditional. You see, we can't see the heart of man and that's why he does this. And that, by doing that, we're leaving the issue with God. He is the only one who sees into our hearts and can judge fairly. If we forgive our oppressor unconditionally, that takes vengeance from our hands, and that's a scary thought, the vengeful thoughts that I have. It takes that, those vengeance from our hands and we give it to him, we leave it at the foot of the cross, and that now makes room for God to use his power to sort out the situation. So that is why I sincerely believe there are no conditions to forgiveness, and we need to just look no further than Jesus hanging from the cross, looked down at the soldiers and he said, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He didn't ask them first whether they wanted to repent or anything. He just unconditionally forgave people who were killing him. We can also point to Stephen while he was being stoned. Exactly the same thing. Asked God to forgive them while he was being killed. He didn't place any conditions on that forgiveness. And so, it would appear that forgiveness is more for the, uh, for the forgiver than the perpetrator. The perpetrator doesn't necessarily receive it. You see, and it doesn't automatically mean reconciliation. Forgiveness doesn't mean condoning what, what's happened or excusing it doesn't mean reconciliation necessarily either. That's where you want to get to. But sometimes forgiveness takes one person, but reconciliation takes both. 
And so it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not like you're condoning what happened. But that unconditional forgiveness is for my heart, not for the person who's offended me. And then there's that other expression that says, forgive and forget. Well, I'm not really sure about that one. I'm lucky in that with my brain, I generally forget when people offend me. So that's a gift that God's given me. So I don't, I don't cling on too much because I forget it. But I think the trick is to forgive what you cannot forget. Forgive what you cannot forget. And yes, unconditional forgiveness is certainly a risk. It is, but faith always is. But with every high risk, there's a high reward. And forgiveness is a, it's an adjective, it's a doing word. It's not an emotion. You don't wake up one day and feel forgiving. You have to work at it. And what I, I, I try to do in my life is I make the decision to forgive. No matter how hard that is, you say, I'm going to do it. And then your heart will follow. Because Jesus wants you to do that. So whether it's someone who's just blocked you in the traffic or, or someone who's done something major to you, the same applies. Choose forgiveness. It's not an emotion. And, you know, those of you who, who know my story of how Bridgie and I went through a, a, a road of forgiveness when, when we had everything taken and stripped from us in the early 2000s, um, that's what we, 20 years ago now, you and I, we believe we've forgiven. But every now and again it comes back and you get that in your stomach. And God's just, I've had that a couple of times. You know, when I, it was a couple of years ago, I was, I was teaching some guys and there were some people in the front row who were part and parcel of taking my farm. And there they were and they weren't particularly, certainly weren't any repentant. They came up to me at tea time and they, they said, oh, we just love eating your oranges. They are so sweet. <laughs> so, 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 of course... I'm down again. Oh, no. And I have to repeat the forgiveness thing again because it, it, it's, as I said, it's a doing word. It's not an emotion. And then a few, few weeks after that, funnily enough, I was in a government, big government building with, uh, we were talking to some uh, highly, fairly high-powered people and this man came down and stood next to me, sat next to me and I looked at him and I'm, man, I know this guy. And he was a guy... He frog-marched me off to a kangaroo court one day and just put me through hell in front of so many people and then helped himself to a huge chunk of my farm. And so I'm, oh, why am I, I'm, this is 15 years later, he's right next to me. So after the meeting, I went up to him and said, sir, do you remember me? He said, no, who are you? Oh, man. And I suddenly thought, Jesus was reminding me, this forgiveness thing's for me, not him. He, didn't, he hadn't lost one second sleep in 15 years. 
and yet he had, what he had done to me. And uh, so I accepted that. I said, okay, all right, you don't remember me, either. that's fine, I've got on. But about a few days, a month, about a, no, it was a few days later, actually, we were having a conference on forgiveness. And I was destined to speak. And I thought, man, I can't speak while I've got this in my heart. So I was boiling about this guy, you know. Anyway, <laughs> so I knew that I had to deal with it. So I rushed, I just, on an unction, I rushed into town, big high-rise office where this guy was, and I, uh, as I opened the door to the foyer at the bottom, there he was. He was walking out. He bumped into me. If I'd been five seconds later, we would have missed each other. So I knew it was a God appointment. So I went, went up to his office, big shiny office, and uh, he's, he had, when he saw me at the door, he remembered me now. And he said, yeah, I do remember you. Come, let's go up to my office. So I went up to his office. And as we sat down, I don't know what he was expecting me to say. But I just sat across the desk from him and I said, Sir, I want to let you know that I've forgiven you totally for what you did to me that day. And took him a little bit by surprise. And then I took a leaf out of my friend from Rwanda's book. I went round to him and I put my hands on his shoulder and I said, Sir, please forgive me. I've hated you for 15 years. Please forgive me. And we ended up hugging. And uh, just something broke in the heavens, you know. Something just broke. And he, he had a little tear in his eye and we were weeping and it just sort of, it, something really broke. And I just, it was God just reminding me that don't get prideful about forgiving because there's something else coming. It's always there. And you've got to get that action mode, you know, and this, as a soldier, you're always taught that when the first bullet goes over your head, you have an action drill where you dive to the ground and then look up and look up and see what's happening. It's just like a, was, all military people will know that as you, you do that. And so when you have that pang of, un, of unforgiveness, remember your action role, I will forgive you. Your action drill. The Welsh poet and priest George Herbert said, Forgiveness is the fragrance of the violet which still clings fast to the heel that has crushed it. I'll read that again. Forgiveness is the fragrance of the violet which still clings fast to the heel that has crushed it. It's a beautiful image of unconditional forgiveness. The fragrance stays with that person. He's crushed you, but your fragrance of, un of forgiveness stays with that person. It's a constant reminder for that person of God's love for that person. So, so whilst I am persuaded that there are no conditions for us forgiving others, I do see one condition in the Bible of God's forgiveness of us. And if you read in Matthew 6, where he takes us through the Lord's Prayer, 
At the end of the Lord's Prayer, the next sentence, he's, he's reiterating only one item of the Lord's Prayer, forgiveness. He's reiterating that. He says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. There seems to be a condition there. I dare not, I dare not disobey that command. So, I've got some serious forgiving to do. I think we all have. So, Lord Jesus, I pray that today you've spoken to our hearts about your unconditional forgiveness when you are hanging on that cross, Lord. But your word also says that if you do not forgive others, how can I forgive you? So Jesus, it sounds contradictory, but it's written in the Bible and it's, it's written in red. And so I don't see much room for speculation, but you ask us to turn the other cheek. You ask us to feed our enemy when he is hungry, to give our enemy something to drink when he is thirsty. You ask those things, Lord, and though it doesn't make sense, it's wrapped up in this unconditional forgiveness. So may we be learned, Lord, to be unconditional forgivers, whether it's a big or a small thing. May we forgive those who have offended us, whether it's a, whatever it is, Lord. May we get into the habit of allowing forgiveness to be an action word, a doing word, and then our hearts will follow, Lord. And we need your help in that area because we are flesh, we are human, we are, we are filthy rags. So Father, help us with this journey of ours to become forgivers in all seasons, in all occasions, for all offenses, that we might be able to live in accordance with your will, bringing glory to you with our actions, with our hearts. You see our hearts, Lord. I ask you to, as we do a spiritual audit today on our hearts and where we are, that you would rip out anything that's not of you and replace it with a soft, malleable heart of flesh which reflects your love into a dark world. We love you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Great. So we're going to go into communion. And... Um,